Heterodorks. Heterodox dorks. Well, hello, turfs and trannies. I am Corinna Cohn, your co-host of Heterodorks. And I am Nina Paley, your other co-host of Heterodorks. And we have a guest heterodork today, fresh from Twitter, where we <laughs> enjoy her tweets. We have Candace Jackson. Welcome. Well, thank you. On the turf and tranny side. Good to be with you. <laughs> All right. So first question I have for you, Candace, and this is for our listeners. Who are you and how did you get here? All right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've been a, a lawyer for well over 20 years and uh, ended up um, in the U.S. Education Department throughout the whole Trump administration. So that's where I really got to dive into uh, the sex and gender implications in law and uh, run their civil rights office there. So how this all plays out in schools, um, I saw front and center over the last uh, several years. I'm back in private practice now in California as a lawyer, still actively involved in these issues, working, for example, with Women's Liberation Front. We've filed the, the first case in the U.S., I, th uh, I think, right now to, to tackle head-on a uh, law in the prison context in California that lets um, men self-ID their way into women's prisons, uh, and then uh, active in several coalitions and, and groups on a more informal level, groups like GenSpect, if anybody has heard of, of their good work that's going on right now, seeking a rational approach to gender and uh, combining voices of um, medical parental detransitioner communities, uh, and they're worldwide, but I help them keep an eye out for what's going on here in the U.S. Uh, and then, as you said, I, I uh, like a lot of us, scream into the void on Twitter and just try to try to pull together a lot of observations of what I've been seeing for, you know, the last several years. How did you get your government job? Like, how did that happen? How did you go from being, I don't know what kind of yeah. lawyer you were before, but how did you end up in a presidential administration? Yeah, I've I've always been to the right of center politically, so active active on the Republican side of things uh, politically. After the Clintons first left office, I wrote a book, kind of an expose on the interviewing the women that had crossed paths with Bill Clinton over the years. So from an angle of sexual abuse and sexual harassment, and you know, exploring the the ideas of you know at least at that time not seeing any feminist or women's rights organizations really speaking up and hypothesizing that there was a kind of liberal misogyny that was, you know, allowed to go under the rug and, and, and get away with, be gotten away with. Um, so interestingly, when Donald Trump ran against Hillary Clinton in 2016, um, the issue of sexual abuse of women played a, a prominent part in, in that campaign. So for better or worse, I decided to jump in on Donald Trump's side in terms of saying, at least let's neutralize this because come on, look at what the Clintons have pulled toward women over the years. So you know what? At the very least, that that's a draw. So became involved with the campaign that way. There were a number of people leading up in the primaries in 2016, Republicans, who declared that they were going to be never Trumpers. And... They have kind of swung around over the years. Uh, not all of them, but many of them have. Was there a, a different primary candidate that you 
had supported originally and then you came back and and jumped on the Trump train? Nope. From the day in 2015 when he walked down the escalator, um, I connected big time with, um, at that point, feeling like both political parties were so elitist, so establishment-minded. There was no difference in my mind to what Republicans were standing for or, or, or getting for anybody versus Democrats. And I appreciated the combination in my mind of seeing him speak in a, a populist way that, that I felt like could really connect again with the average American and speak to issues that actually resonate, not by filtering them through an ideology. He's probably the least ideological president we've had in a long time, but also willing to speak brutally. And I found uh, a lot of the, the shenanigans amusing rather than offensive. And so I was all in from the beginning and thought, you know what, the system needs to be kind of shaken up from, from the ground up. And I think that is, that is what we got. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I could understand that when, uh, when he was rising in popularity, he definitely captured the a pox on both your houses feeling which I, I kind of had, but then I was overwhelmed with terror also. I thought like, ah, yeah, burn all down, yeah. And then, and then when he actually got elected, I didn't vote for him, uh, but I wasn't expecting him to get elected. And when it actually happened, I was like, you know, maybe I don't really want to burn it all down. <laughs> maybe that's not good. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Yeah, James Lindsay has has put it this way, and it resonates to me, saying uh, Trump is really our first postmodern president. And I, I think when when I sit back and try to think that through, I see a, I see a lot of truth to that. I, I think that there's a lot of insight there that um, it's not so much political ideology driving things um, as there is a, a real aspect of pulling together a, a, a an instinctive way of capitalizing on the sort of truth is all relative now and you can get away with anything. You just, you hope that the goal is good, I suppose, because the means are going to justify whatever end you're pursuing. And there's no real first principle way to step back and, and judge because nobody wants to judge anything anymore. So in that sense, I think there's a lot of truth to kind of move past enlightenment and we're in this uh, really twisted postmodern era and I, I think somebody like like Trump capitalized on that, um, not by intent, maybe, but but just by instinct. Well, I feel like Democrats really got him elected by lavishing so much attention on him. I mean, I was I was not a, a big fan. I could understand his appeal. But uh, these people that supposedly hated him, I was just like, why are you? you know, retweeting everything and reposting everything that he says. If you hate him, that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do. And they did it over and over again. And I was like, well, there you go. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he, you know, the the rallies and the speeches and the tweets and, and everything, he he went right, right to the people. I mean, he kind of skipped by, he had no problem not just skipping mainstream media, but but calling them names and really just kind of blowing past every gatekeeping um, filter that has usually been in place. So I don't know. I think he would have connected with enough people, even if the orange man bad 
reaction hadn't been as as uh, intense as it was. Well, the reaction was certainly postmodern, also. Yeah, very apocalyptic, right? You know, the the world will end, and and everything will 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 end in shambles. Not, and I don't mean that by postmodern. I just mean that, like, while if we call Trump a postmodern president, which I think is an interesting label, then the the response to him, the response by his enemies was also to get like super postmodern. And that's why now we can't know what a woman is. And, you know, everybody's truth. There, there is no truth. The timing is interesting because that was, that was developing at the tail end of the Obama Biden administration. I mean, that, that 2015, 2016, period was when you you really started seeing you know the the gender ideology policies come to fruition and and become expressed in policy documents throughout the administration i don't know how how much uh was a factor that you know perhaps reaction to trump from the left leaned into that but it was certainly already a thing that that was starting to to get pushed out I think what what's the interesting hypothetical to me is what would have happened if Hillary Clinton had gotten elected because I I don't see her by I you know as much of a critic for various reasons of as I've ever been of the Clintons I have a hard time seeing Hillary Clinton having taken over from Obama Biden and not at least put some brakes on the disassociation from basic reality that uh, that this weird postmodern uh, ideology is is pushing everything. And I, I think she was too much of a realist, to, at least to have leaned into that and really jumped on board it and pushed it. That sounds right. And in fact, if you look at Hillary Clinton's politics, as compared to the current Democratic Party, she would be considered a lot closer to Joe Manchin than she would be Schumer, right? Chuck Schumer. Yeah. She, tr- yeah. she tried to uh, get some energy going to pass a, an amendment to outlaw flag burning. And she was against yeah. same-sex marriage. Hmm. But she's also a every inch a politician. So whichever way the wind was blowing, if she could harness that, she would. That's my impression of her. Like, I don't, I, I don't really see these politicians so much as leaders as well, I guess Biden's pretty bad. I don't know. It's hard to say, right? Like my, my impression of the democratic party is flavored by the way Democrats are behaving these days. And they seem not very leader ish. It's hard. No, I think the democratic party was, you know, felt like she was robbed um, and, you know, kind of owed this, but I think you're right that Hillary Clinton represents an era of politics that is actually pretty moderate. And, you know, the, I think the main critiques are more pretty traditional of a lot of politicians and it's in the vein of corruption and power seeking and willingness to be, you know, pretty hypocritical to your own supposed platforms and principles. If it's to keep yourself in power type of thing, but that's very, very different than wholesale embracing a worldview that throws aside all recognition of, of constraints of both material reality and, and constraints of we do start from some set of shared norms. Corinna 
tweeted a poll recently to people that voted for Biden, whether people that voted for Biden wanted to see Democrats lose in the next, what are these elections? I am 20, so bad 2022, the, the uh, congressional election. Yes. And the majority, of, if people were being honest, I was being honest. I said, yes. <laughs> yes, I do want a lot of these Democrats to lose. Uh, I'm very sad that they've come to this point where I've, where I want them to lose, but I can't support this. This, I mean, I can't support the, the gender cult that, and it's just amazing to me that what Biden is, is doing. And I, you know, he's, he seems to just be like this old guy that's doing whatever (laughs) his advisors are telling him to do. And I'm just like, what, why? How? How is this happening? Yeah, I I don't think it clicks at all that when he hugs a male lesbian and waxes poetic about how your rights are human rights and uh, and so forth that 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 how that flies in the face of groups like gays and lesbians that just five minutes ago the Democratic Party was supposed to be standing in solidarity with. I, I don't think any of it clicks. Yeah, the Democrats, and I'm not a Democrat, I'm a libertarian, but I I think the Democrats are doing a a pretty amazing job at really screwing up intersectionalism because they'll be like, hey, we're totally about the LGBTQ, and also we really want Hispanics to vote for us who are traditionally a very Catholic and... Uh, traditionalist uh, bunch of people. Not not every one of them, obviously, but there's a reason why the Republicans are doing a little bit better and better each election cycle with, with splitting the Hispanics from the Democratic side. And then uh, the Democrats are like, hey, we're, we're all about labor. But then if you look and see who's contributing to their candidates now, it's all hedge funds and billionaires. And I I think that the Democrats have tried to pull so many identity interests together that really have no ideological commonalities, that they're just ready to fall apart with any sort of, there's going to be a straw that just breaks that whole coalition. And I reckon it's going to be gender identity that does it. Well, it just might because it's, it's, it was already getting, you know, <laughs> those of us a little bit right of center would have even, you know, five, 10 years ago thought, oh, OK, identity politics on the left is getting a little silly, a little out of control. How many different how many different group groups and characteristics are you, are you going to divide us all into before remembering that we are all individuals? We are all you know, we do have kind of a, a, an equality inherent and in dignity and so forth all the same there was at least the possibility of grappling with that when identity still related to characteristics that were at least somewhat objectively definable you could identify a group and say objectively who's in that group and who's not what jumped the shark though was 
the way that queer theory, you know, spawned gender ideology um, and infected the LGBTQ to the point where you're not talking about intersectionality of characteristics and groups with certain characteristics that may historically or currently have special needs for attention because of those characteristics. It's a different conceptual field now. And that's my theory on why you're seeing everybody on the left who's jumped into this queer theory ideology side of things. Trans is everything. Trans and gender identity is paramount and supreme over everything. They will and are smashing through and running roughshod over every single group of people that that they used to care about, whether it's women's rights or gay rights, um, people of color, whatever the breakdown is that was based on any kind of material characteristic is swept to the side uh, for the primacy of gender ideology. And I don't think it's because of any of a group of people who use the label transgender. I don't think there's any power in that group. I don't think it's a definable, coherent group. It is the, it's the ideology behind it that is the motivator and the power. It is, it is, um, it is really kind of a power trip, I think, to those in charge, government officials and, and uh, corporate heads and so forth, to feel like they're doing something, to feel like they're, they're on the right side of history, to feel like they are, uh, you know, kind of saviors of, of humanity by buying into the pretense that, that reality itself can, can be whatever anybody wants it to be. There, there's a power in that and a seduction in, in uh, buying into that. You, you know, I'm just thinking about this for a second, Candace, and we've been through a really traumatic worldwide event since the beginning of 2020. And although the scientists who developed the vaccine went through a heroic effort to getting that out to availability, and although in America the FDA innovated some shortcuts in the developmental cycle so that it could get out to the public faster. And although our government was flexible to have that happen, and I know that that was under the Trump administration, uh, all of, although all of that happened, the vaccines did not seem to prevent, ultimately did not seem to prevent the mass death event, which we've observed uh, over a million Americans dying from it, and that the even today, uh, in, in the summer of 2022, it seems that the infection rate is still quite high. If the vaccine had worked perfectly, if, if it had been accepted by the public and it had been demonstrated to have much more efficacy in preventing the spread of the disease, maybe that was the savior event that the administration, the Biden administration, would have said, well, we are the knights, we, we saved people. But ha that having not been a stunning success, uh, something of a, a failure, arguably, particularly given all of the guarantees they made on the campaign trail that they were going to be the ones to save people. Maybe this trans issue is something that's a, a lot more tangible for the administration to grasp onto in order to represent themselves in the role of being a protector of some 
demographic. So uh, I, I guess my thesis is if they weren't able to save people from COVID, at least maybe they're saving trans people from bigots. Trans children from puberty, from the horrible puberty that yeah. will turn them into adults. Because because uh, we got to trust somebody for some reason, right? I think that's right. I think, I, and I think that that thesis works well when you step back and think about the role that gender ideology is playing. It may not be may not be a, a an ideology truly at all. It really is functioning as a very a very powerful and fulfilling uh, spiritual set of beliefs, um, almost a religion. And in the bigger picture of where things have, where the Western world has been at, um, you know, in the last couple of decades, in a way, it makes a lot of sense. We have sort of plateaued in terms of, one, a need for a lot of... Um, advancement in terms of legal equalities and civil rights. I'm not saying there's not much to do, blah, blah, blah. But in general, we have made huge progress toward openly acknowledging and making concrete moves toward people with different characteristics being officially, legally tolerated and and even accommodated when needed, like for disability, et cetera. We've made a lot of advancements in participation of all different kinds of people in the Western world. We've also, though, stalled in terms of advancements uh, materially and, and progress in, in that kind of economic realm. There's been some stagnation going on. And I think you put those two things together and it might make a recipe for a perfect brew of uh, enough people sitting back and realizing that yeah, we've done all right without religion. We've done pretty well. And that's definitely the way to go is, is never, ever to let religion infiltrate government ever again. We, we definitely agree with that. But on the other hand, look at the way that, um, that this kind of spiritual journey can be promoted by people in power uh, to lift up and help every human being, because anybody can claim a gender identity. It's not limited to anybody based on a material characteristic. That's the whole point of the subjective nature of gender identity. So theoretically, every human being has this potential now to be enabled uh, to, to find themselves and to uh, express their authentic uh, self and self-determination becomes a reality for everybody. And that you can, you can do that now. It's all, it's all make-believe, it's all pretend, but it can be a powerful placebo, just well, arguably any religion can be, right? So it can be a powerful impact on any individual and it can be a, a pretty heady rush to feel like you are able to deliver that opportunity to every human being. And you no longer have to worry about whether somebody with a disability truly has equal opportunities or whether, you know, women as a class are still doing all right in certain areas or, or whether black men in America are or are not uh, killed by cops. You can drop all that to some extent because you've given everybody the potential of some pretty mm. deep spiritual fulfillment. Wow, from a from a secular authority. Yeah, 
yeah, because nobody's going to, nobody's admitting that this is uh, religious or spiritual in nature, but boy, that sure looks like how it's functioning. There is such an overlap between genderists or trans activists and pro-vaccine people, like the people that, there are people that regard vaccines religiously. Uh, I mean, I don't think vaccines are useless. I don't think they were a, a hoax or anything like that, but I do think that you know, they promised efficacy that they didn't deliver. They still delivered some, but I, it seems like the people that are the most devout genderists are also the most devout believers in the vaccines and uh, also in masks. Like in my town, the very few stores that still require masks are all the stores that, you know, had had meetings devoted to canceling me a couple years ago because I said women don't have penises. And there's just like such a a correlation there. And yeah, they seem to, there is this religious attitude towards things, including the vaccine uh, that. It's, it's, um, it's alluring to have faith, you know, deliver me from all evil. It's, you know, especially like Corinne is pointing out against the background of a true pandemic that feels black plagueish, right? I mean, it, it you, you, yeah, I mean, it almost collectively, it would be surprising if we weren't reaching out in some desperation to have some deliverance, some salvation. So let's talk about the religion, the religion that doesn't want to call itself a religion. And the fact that it doesn't want to call itself a religion makes it very hard, if not impossible, to classify it as religion, even though it's a religion. What are we going to do about that? It, 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 is, it is hard. I have, yet to find, um, I have yet to find a precedent for a situation where Legally, in the U.S., we have put something in the box of a religion when it didn't want to be there. Even something like uh, Scientology is, is an easy analogy to make in a lot of ways, even from the perspective that Scientology began not as a religion at all, but but as a set of pseudoscientific propositions and, and kind of snake oil cures for all kinds of things and, and so forth. And, but the set of, that set of ideas and the people behind it very self-consciously turned itself into a religion. Organizationally, legally, fought for the right to be recognized as a religion. I haven't, I haven't found a precedent for going in the opposite direction where something has taken over and operated and functioned as a religion to the extent that with nobody really holding up their hand and saying, I'm in charge of what the doctrines are, obey me, with no single focus person or, or organized body uh, issuing things, it is a little bit difficult, I think, to see what the route forward is legally for treating genderism as a religion. Conceptually, it, it sure seems like the way to go, because at that point, in the religious liberty box, believers, true believers, uh, get a lot of rights. They get a lot of respect and a lot of rights. You, you have the right to believe, the right to practice your faith, and then we know how to hold you accountable for following generally applicable neutral rules that you know are going to maybe clamp down on your ability to practice your faith. 
but we know how to do that with a with a religion. So conceptually, to me, there's a lot of advantages to to seeing the reality of how this is operating. the The route for getting there legally is is a little tricky. Uh, we're right now um, working with Women's Liberation Front, challenging the California prison law. Uh, I think we're the first case right now in the U.S. to officially raise an establishment clause argument against a law for being premised on gender identity, the concept of which has just absolutely zero objective, rational explanation, basis, justification. So you have to believe in gender identity and its implications on how it changes, determines, or is super much more important than an objective characteristic like sex, that has to all be faith-based. So the, you know, the argument is that whether or not you, you officially declare it to be a religion, it is certainly violating the spirit of the establishment clause that a state would premise official law and policy on compelling everybody who interacts with an entire system of government to be classified by the government and compelled by the government to profess faith in in an entire system that isn't isn't grounded anywhere uh, except in very spiritual miraculous notions well i have a question about that though because i am a, a rational person I subscribe to rational beliefs. I do not believe in a God at all. And I am so rational that one of the publications that I read relig- uh, regularly <laughs> is called Scientific American, which oh, clearly no. by its name, oh, no. it, just look at the label. It says scientific on it. I put a sign outside of my house, in fact, that says, I believe in science. So clearly I'm a rational person. And when I'm reading the op-ed portion of my Scientific American magazine, what I see in it pretty much every month now is a scientific argument that provides for the rational evidence or the rational belief that every person has a gender identity, that anybody who identifies as a member of the sex to which they were not assigned at birth is essentially biologically indistinguishable from the opposite sex. And this is all supported by a trove of uh, scientific research. So I would say that this isn't faith at all, that, that there is an army of biologists and astrologers who are behind the, uh, the scientific evidence of, of gender identity. I, I think that's a very good point. I think that faith can be rational. I, I think there's a reason why a lot of, you know, a lot of Americans who might have tuned into the great Christianity versus atheism debates that we've had in this over in this country over the years might think that the the faith side won the debate. And that was supposedly all premised on on rationality, appeals to logic, appeals to human nature, appeals even to history. 
appeals to a lot of different disciplines. The case for Christ kind of arguments that put forward, it's not irrational to have faith. It's actually illogical to look around you and observe yourself and other human beings and the world around you. And it's irrational to conclude that there is no God. So yeah, there's a very strong case to be made and many people make it that that faith in the supernatural whether it's a a god uh, as in a monotheism or or supernatural other types of events that you would actually be very blind and selective and illogical and emotion based not to agree that, that that there are such phenomena out there so yeah there's a a rational case to be made for faith. But at the end of the day, we've we've also drawn a line and said, it's actually, we don't forbid establishment of an official state religion. We don't require separation of church from the state because we've declared that all religious beliefs are crazy, irrational, pathological. But because we are very concerned with not compelling um, citizens in our country from pretending or having feeling like they have to pretend to adhere to particular beliefs when they when they don't, because they either have none or they have a different set. (laughs) And either way, we want to respect everybody's right to do that. That's the, the pluralistic desire behind separating church from state. All of those faiths can flourish. Um, all of the all of the churches uh, or atheist groups can can equally flourish and have opportunities to convince each other of the rationality or irrationality, the consequential goodness or, or negativity of, of each of their worldviews and belief systems. But we never, ever, ever want the state to be in a position of compelling any of us to adhere or or disclaim faith. But isn't this the issue with people that don't want evolution taught in schools? Don't they say that like, well, my religion says no way is this true. And so if I'm of this faith, how can you compel me to use this textbook that has all this evolution in it when I believe when I when I profess creation science and flood science? Yeah, and one of your one of your recent guests you had on Colin Wright, did you not? And uh, he he submitted a, gr- a a great declaration testimony in in this prison lawsuit case for us just this week, so that it, it's a little weird that in a lawsuit you you have to start from ground zero and explain what male and female are scientifically and objectively, and explain step by step how and why. There, there is no, there's no measure or logical or scientific way to categorize gender or gender identity the way that we do uh, male and female as the, the, the evolutionary result of, of how the human species reproduces. But that's where you have to start these days, and and ex, you know back. Extraordinary claims should require extraordinary proof, right? And so in my view, we should be able to start from all of the premises that have been common sense and observable by humans well before we knew what chromosomes were, before we ever knew what DNA was, 
before we knew about any of that, we should be able to start from the observations that humans have had uh, for all of recorded history that men and women are a thing and they're very different and mixing them together is what causes new humans and all of that. And if that's going to be swept aside, then the burden should be on, on those who want to claim that that's no longer fact, that that's no longer truth uh, to do that. I think what they're trying to do, though, is have it both ways. You know, for, for example, with the prison situation, this law in California could have said we no longer want to separate prisons by, by men's and women's prisons. Don't separate inmates. Don't place inmates in prison based on their sex anymore. Let's do it based on femininity and masculinity, or let's do it based on, you know, a range of vulnerability factors that do not factor in sex. They, the law could have done that, but it doesn't. And gender ideology, when it works its way into any law or policy that, that I see, never does that. It never openly says, let's do away with sex. And I suppose that's because gender identity <laughs> understands that itself in trying to even explain what it is, by definition, has to refer back to sex because the, the concept of a gender identity is either consonant or disconsonant with one's sex. Now, they'll, you know, they'll mess that up a little bit, I suppose, by saying sex assigned at birth uh, as though your sex isn't just a, a factual characteristic that's been determined well before you were born. But gender identity has no explanation for what it even is without reference to to sex, to the status of being male or female. So they can't really toss aside sex recognition. And yet, once you allow subjective self-identification, the practical Im implication in any particular context, like, like prison housing, the practical implication is that you're no longer separating and dividing people up by sex. But on paper, they leave it there. So that's the, the contradiction that I think they need to be called out on. And they, meaning you know, people who are in love with this ideology and want it to take primacy in, in laws and policies, because they're trying to have it both ways. They're trying to both make use of thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human civilization and what we just know and can assume is true, and yet toss all that out and expect us to all act upon some totally different set of premises as well. We're talking about this somewhat in the abstract, Candace, and, and I do want to ask your opinion on whether the legislatures will fix this or if it's going to have to be the courts. But, but before we continue operating in, in theory, I'm wondering if you could at least give us a little bit of practical insight as to how women are affected, particularly in the prison system, when the government conflates the concept of gender identity and sex? Yeah, it's um, th there are few areas of, of human behavior where sociologically all of the evidence for all time across all cultures has been as clear as it is in, in the context of, of crime that both qualitatively and quantitatively, commission of crime is very sex differentiated. It just is. Male patterns versus female patterns of 
types of violence committed is very, very, very starkly different everywhere and always has been. And the implications and impacts and harms that are caused by even the same commission, uh, uh, the same type of crime committed is very different, uh, can be very different when committed by a male than, than by a female. It very much is grounded in physical characteristics that are just very different between males and females. So in the crime context like that, um, when you look at uh, how this plays out in, in the prison housing context, the only, the only time in history when we didn't used to separate men and women in prison was when society had such a view, such a sexist view of women that they rarely locked them up to begin with. They kind of either killed them off right away or, <laughs> or uh, you know, there were so few that were actually locked up long term that, you know, they could kind of just hide them away in a corner of, of the jail or the prison. And so it wasn't until there was, for a lot of different social reasons, that the numbers of women arrested and, and held long-term in jail and prison started spiking, that there became a need to, to assess, oh, wait a minute, we, we can't just squash all the women that we have now into attics and corners of the jail and the prison. We're going to have to start thinking about separate wings. That's how it started in California and then separate facilities. So it, it's, you know, it has been a couple hundred years now, though, that, that we have kind of recognized the need to separate men and women. And that hasn't really been challenged until now. Most of the equal protection challenges until gender identity ideology started taking over were content with men's and women's prisons being separate facilities, but concerned about the equality between them in terms of what kind of programming is offered and what kind of conditions are present and, you know, wanting to see equality between the sexes in that way. So this really is the first time in history that we've, we've had to challenge the notion that women are very subject to vulnerability from males uh, in close quarters and in contexts where threats uh, put you in a fight or flight uh, kind of position. But in prison, there's nowhere to flight to. And differences between males and females just are going to end up meaning that fight is you're, you're going to be on the losing end if it's one on one. And the scary example that we've that we've seen in California is that um, a group of women did fight back against one of these males placed in the women's prison who was just tormenting them all daily. Uh, and they did fight back and they kind of beat the hell out of him. But that was a very group victim retaliation situation that wow. you see sometimes it, it, as a pattern in, in uh, domestic abuse and so forth. Uh, that is not usually how it works out. So the way that it plays out for, for women is everything from the indignity of, of changing, showering, using the toilet in, in the presence of men to when even some women are sexually assaulted and raped, it puts everybody in fear, almost everybody. Um, in legitimate fear of not knowing who's next. And then aside from the violence and the, and the sexual rape uh, aspect of what women are living through right now in prison is just the consequence of sex in prison. There are women in prison who appreciate having some of these men come over because men are heterosexual with working penises and the women have been locked up for a long time and they're heterosexual too. And they're for many reasons, um, sleeping with these guys voluntarily. 
I think there's always a slight question in a prison context where most women are very, very abused in their histories. And so the question of genuine consent versus at what point is it really coercion or at least taking advantage, that's always going to be present. But even assuming that there is plenty of sex happening now between incarcerated men and women on a voluntary basis, sex in prison like that is not a good thing. Pregnancy in prison is not a good thing. We have always recognized that pregnancy in prison is is a bit of a travesty because these women are are already in situations where women's health care is subpar. And then you add the condition of pregnancy to that and the, the choice between carrying a pregnancy to term in prison, where in most jurisdictions that uh, if you bear, if you have the child, it's going to be taken away from you very quickly. And you just hope that you have a family member to come pick it up because otherwise it's becoming a state ward, ward of the state. Um, or you have to choose to have an abortion in prison. And all of that is a very serious medical, health, emotional, psychological, moral burden that falls entirely and only ever onto women in prison, never to men in, pr- men in prison. I'm stunned. <laughs> so that's joy. Yeah, it's just joyful. It's a really joyful picture of what women are living living with. I mean, now there were plenty of there were plenty of prison reform issues that women need to work on that we need to work on on behalf of women in prison. This should not have been one of them. Taking up uh, everybody's energy and resources just trying to get women away from criminal men in prison. Yeah, a lot of people don't even believe this is happening. So. You mentioned that their dignity is being impinged upon. I forget the exact wording that you used. But I wonder, I think we anticipate pretty soon that the Supreme Court is going to come out with a ruling saying that there is no constitutional right to privacy. I guess that would raise a question as to whether or not there's a constitutional right to dignity. Yeah, it might. And, and you know, to be honest, the, the privacy, the, the right to bodily privacy um, was something that we raised in this lawsuit under the California Constitution. And that, that kind of claim may not go very far in a lawsuit like this, um, precisely because the federal constitution's um, privacy protections are a little bit limited. I do think that there's hope that whether it's at the state or federal level, that ultimately there's recognition that, look, you're in the prison context, you're starting from a baseline of indignity. I mean, that it's just horrible. Every person incarcerated is subjected to some pretty awful levels of indignity. It's, it's not, it's not cool. And I don't know if you can avoid it or if some base level of horribleness is just how it, it is. But what concerns us then is the added sense of violation and lack of ability to protect yourself or, Uh, feel at all intact when it's an opposite sex situation. And that's always come up as an issue when, uh, whether it's an opposite sex guard uh, who's peering at you or, or or strip searching you, those have always been issues. But when it's inmate to inmate, there is a level of, well, you know, guards aren't there watching you, literally watching you shower. You know, guards, even opposite sex ones, aren't right there watching you use the toilet every time. It's just... That's not how it goes. But other inmates sure are because you're talking about four man cells, four woman cells in the women's prison that are already overstuffed with eight people to a cell. So the conditions are very, very crowded. 
and you don't have privacy away from other inmates. And so at that point, if that's the baseline, there does need to be at some point some legal recognition that not having privacy away from uh, unwanted opposite sex bodies and eyes and leers is a problem. In Illinois, this was mostly the work of the ACLU. Is that true in California as well, in terms of placing male prisoners? Very much so. New Jersey, I believe, you know, I believe also the ACLU was very involved in securing a settlement in New Jersey that agreed to start uh, placing male inmates into women's prisons. Uh, California, though, is one of the few states, New York is, is coming up right behind with an actual statewide law legislation that came out and said every inmate will be asked what their gender identity is and what their where their preferred placement is based on their gender identity uh, into men's or women's. And the only factor that you can take into account in denying their preferred placement uh, is a security or management concern, but that concern cannot be based on any anatomy, physical characteristics, genitalia, or any other factor that is present at both men's and women's prisons, which would take up, which takes off the table uh, your criminal history, conviction history, your prison disciplinary history, your mental health status or history. There is no factor that is literally not present among some of the population in both types of prisons. So what kind of security or management concern could possibly justify the prison system not placing a male who claims a transgender or non-binary or intersex identity (laughs) into women's prison if that's where the prisoner says they want to go. So you had said earlier that sex is sort of affirmed and undermined by this transgender ideology, but you didn't talk about non-binary. It seems like non-binary is on the rise, not among uh, male prisoners who want to get in women's prisons, but certainly among young people. And non-binary, the idea is that you don't have a sex at all and that you're beyond it, that sex is just for boring people. And uh, and it seems so pure in its religious aspect that like non-binaries are like angels or something. But then that's happening simultaneous, right? Like simultaneous with the assault on women's rights, which is what I see happening, you know, prisons being a great example of that, is the idea that there aren't even women to begin with. So who cares? And how do you fit that into what's going on? Yeah, the... (laughs) The way that a law tries to define non-binary as some, you know, inclusive umbrella term that can mean any gender identity that isn't wholly male or female, but that might be some of both or neither one. It might be genderqueer, might be agender, might be without gender, might be third gender. I mean, these are terms that are literally in the California law now. It's disturbing. And how to, <laughs> they're actually written out, genderqueer, third gender, agender, gender fluid, all of those are types of non-binary identities that will get you placed in men's or women's to your preference. Although, by the way, female, some females, about uh, about a dozen of, of female inmates have requested transfer into men's prison for, you know, they, they identify as transgender men or 
or is non-binary and California has not uh, approved a single one. So there, there is some implicit recognition going on that, that women are not safe surrounded by men in prison, even the women who are on testosterone, maybe have had mastectomies and truly, you know, identify themselves as, as men. So that, that's kind of interesting. But how, how the law tries to deal with non-binary, I think, is indicative of becoming unmoored from, from any kind of pretense of reality going on. Because it's, it's one thing to say, as a lot of transsexuals do, our prison case just had a great declaration submitted from a transsexual, a male who had bottom surgery and has been on hormones for a lot of, a lot of years. And, you know, the belief is that there is only male or female and you do all you can to transition from one to the other. If that's what you need to do to treat gender dysphoria, that that's been kind of a standard reality based uh, interpretation of what goes on with transsexualism for, for a long time. Once you escape completely from, from that binary paradigm, and into the realm of, of non-binary, the sky's kind of the limit. And I'm not sure why it would stop with sex at that point, because if you think about it, non-binary isn't even tied, why is it even tied to species? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it won't be, it can't be, it, it, you know, if there's a push for that or a desire for that, and the more that something be, you know, continues to be a, a trend, unless the trend explodes or implodes to the point where there's depth, where there's just no cool factor to it anymore. If, as long as it's on a trend line, I've got to imagine that, that teenagers, you know, being teenagers are going to keep pushing to find the next transgressive line. And because this is a trend that is embraced by authority that is embraced wholeheartedly and, and affirmed by institutions, how are teenagers supposed to be transgressive these days? Well, first, maybe it was non-binary, right? Because that's so cool and new and weird that, you know, you're not, you're not doing the old fashioned thing of going from male to female or female to male, man, you're, you're just transcending all of that. Well, okay, but that's now institutionalized, legalized, pushed by law and schools and medicine and everything else. And you're right about non-binary being a little angelic, Nina, because look at what nullo, nullification surgeries look like. Uh, it's really disturbing. Uh, but what would be the next transgressive thing? Why, why not push the species boundary? So it just, there's no inherent limiting principle to anything if the idea or notion is that your inner identity, your vision of yourself is one, materially true, and two, deserves to be affirmed and validated in every way possible by everybody else on the planet. The entire medical profession, the entire educational system, the entire uh, corporate apparatus, the entire system of government and the power and force of law must affirm and validate every notion you have about yourself. That, that's, that's where that goes. And it's, it's a little bit strange to think that anybody can think of that as, as sustainable. How, how do you do that with 8 billion different personalities and inner visions of ourselves floating around? That takes me to my question that I asked before, Candace. How does this stop? Is this something that legislatures have to put the brakes on or is this something that eventually the courts have to settle? I actually think it'll be a combination. I think we're seeing 
the route right now where uh, until and unless there is a federal law stopping it, and honestly, on this kind of issue, even a, a federal law might not actually stop uh, states from taking on some of these issues, at least in particular contexts. There's a lot of statutory pushback at the state level right now, in at least in certain areas like women's sports or medicalization of, of minors for gender reasons. So at least particular areas, states are, are becoming involved um, legislatively. I think that will continue. But I do think ultimately this is going to have to get resolved in, in some bigger way through the court system. I think the Supreme Court did us zero favors with the Bostock versus Clayton County decision two years ago. Uh, it opened the door to this uh, to the rationale, whether everybody in the majority on that decision saw this coming and just didn't care, or I'm confused by it because it, it really it really laid the groundwork for where a lot of this has been going for the last two years. So I do think sometime relatively soon, sort of the opposite situation that was presented in, in Bostock is going to have to make its way back up to the Supreme Court, at least for the vindicating principle of uh, legislatures. It's not unconstitutional or contrary to any civil rights law for legislators to... <laughs> refuse to validate subjective identity. So I, I think it's going to take both of those routes before before this really gets clamped down on. I also think if it takes too long that we're going to see a lot of civil disobedience on a scale that maybe we really haven't seen before. My example is perspective from the education department. The way that the federal government gets school districts and colleges and universities to obey federal dictates is almost entirely strings attached to money. That's the power that the federal government has in the realm of education for the most part. And so if, if the federal government is going to start insisting that Title IX is turned upside down, for example, and, and says school districts now must honor gender identity at the expense of upholding sex classifications, uh, I think we would actually start seeing school districts play the game of chicken with the federal government and say, come, you know what, terminate my funding. I dare you. Because in the history of the education department, it hasn't actually come to that. So the chances are pretty small anyway, that funding actually gets cut off. I think this is an issue that is so upside down and offensive to, to so many people that there are going to be a lot of school districts that would take it on. I have one more question, which is, is genderism rising on the right? We see it as this left phenomenon increasingly, or is it different? Like, is genderism on the right different than genderism on the left? Like uh, Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, seems to be standing up for women's sports and i know that he's conservative uh and he's also trans she nina yeah uh she i said caitlin okay <laughs> i'm not gonna say she uh, her penis her penis her yes. penis it's her car that killed an old lady hers yeah but it, it seems like uh it, there is a kind of well, it seems like autogynephilia is popular on the right, <laughs> but that it has a, a somewhat different flavor politically than what's going on on the left. 
think there there are two dimensions of that from from my experience being on the right. Uh, one is that there is a, a segment of uh, of Republicans who, even though, for example, one man one woman equals marriage is is uh, at least last time, you know, even as late as 2020 is still the national party's platform position. Everybody sort of ignores it now, but that is, that is still the position. But there are a lot of Republicans now that fight back on that and that don't like that anymore and want to be seen as liberal minded and embracing and big tent advocates in terms of uh, homosexuality. So there's a huge misimpression that being critical of gender ideology and acceptance of gender identity as a thing uh, that that overrides sex that that there's just a, a an assumption that that's anti-gay well we don't want to be anti-lgbt anymore we don't want to be anti-gay anymore that was a huge obstacle in the trump administration because it was either it seemed to me there were there were either people on the right who actually still hate homosexuals and didn't want them to have equal anything anyway and so they were more than happy to grab onto, well, this is the slippery slope we warned you all about when, you know, you said you wanted marriage equality. Look what happens now. Or it was the other the other side of Republicans that were like, oh, but we want to be pro-gay now. And we want to be cool with that. And, and so we can't be anti-LGBT. So and I think you're, we're still seeing that play out. I think we're seeing a lot of coalition building on the right against gender ideology but if you look closely enough, you're, you're going to see not all, but quite a bit of that is is also coming along with a renewed sort of permission on the right to go ahead and be openly anti-homosexual and blame everything from women's rights and feminism to gay rights and, and gay marriage uh, for starting all of this. And it's all our fault. There's plenty of that going on. Not, not by everybody, thankfully, but but it's there. And then you have some others, like if you look at a couple of the Republican governors who vetoed protect women's sports legislation and had to get overridden in their state to to have it pass, I think some of that is just the blithering, unthinking, I'm such a cool liberal Republican that I'm, you know, I'm rainbow friendly. And it's just not bothering to stop and think about the difference between tolerance of homosexuality and pushing uh, an antisocial, upside-down, confusing, and dangerous ideology onto school kids. It seems like in California, there's a, a lot of desire to... I, that, that's sort of where a lot of the transgender politics originated, and, and the populace of California seems to be pretty behind dismantling sex as a class and replacing it with gender identity. If California and some of the other states like New York really put their feet down, isn't it likely that even if it goes up to the federal court level of of gender identity is absolutely separate from sex, that those states might nevertheless remove instances in law where it says sex and replace it with gender identity, saying instead of conflating them, we're just going to replace it. Uh, by legislative mandate, and that some of the ideologies that support gender identity might be enshrined as part of the school curriculum. Isn't it possible that 
even if at the national level, if the opponents of gender identity win the victories that they seek, that they will nevertheless fail to protect uh, people, women and children in some of these more uh, liberal states? I think that's absolutely possible. I think it's a, a um, I think that's prescient because in a, in a more ordinary era, we've already seen that kind of mentality on states like on the part of states like California, even with something uh, as tame and routine as uh, legalizing marijuana that flies in the face of, of federal federal law and policy, but California is going to do it anyway, or, or on immigration uh, issues. And California doesn't like uh, the federal government's policy on that. California will throw its doors open and openly flout the, the federal government's expectations or, or rules. So to me, I guess the question whether that is going to be repeated with this, it will, and we've already seen it, by the way, the way that California has officially uh, you know, put the word out there, for example, that if you're a family in Texas and you're you're scared of uh, now about pushing for gender affirming care for your child, come to California. We'll take care of you. So they're already opening their doors uh, to be a, a sanctuary like that. I, I would I would say that's just more evidence of how religious in nature this is. That you've got some states that are worried about religious persecution and are offering playing the role of of churches that offer you know safe harbor to to persecuted uh, members of other faiths. But that will continue unless and until there is any kind of breaking point uh, among enough of the the California populace. That's not impossible, but I I think there would have to be some kind of breaking point. Otherwise, we're already seeing indications of California's willingness to pay whatever price, and there usually isn't much of one, frankly, um, uh, of uh, ignoring, ignoring what the feds say. For people who are affected by this, obviously children can't vote. The only thing they can do is be dragged in front of their legislatures looking pathetic while dressed as a member of the opposite sex. But as far as uh, adults go, primarily women and, and maybe to some extent men who are appalled at some of the things that are happening uh, vis-a-vis the dismantling of sex class, uh, what can they do? Like, is there any organization in California that is trying to operate at a local or state level to combat some of these policy changes? You know, it's a weird combination. Um, uh, there, there are some of the, I mean, some, some of the national or even international groups are, are certainly paying attention to a state like California. And then on the very on the flip end, you you have a lot of underground organizing going on in California. Uh, lesbians aren't allowed to to organize openly anymore without getting attacked and and accused of being discriminatory. But there are a lot of underground networks going on right now that are reviving those in real life meetups and strategizing and so forth. And it's not just lesbians; it's also uh, there are similar groups of moms. That are, that are tracking and doing their own intel into what uh, teachers unions and teacher trainings and GSA clubs at school are up to. So there's a lot of that underground at the very, very, it's not even grassroots at that point because it's not even organized yet, but it's happening. 
There's a big middle zone that you point out, though, that isn't really being filled right now. And that is, you know, actual organizations that are in and focused on a particular state like California. I'm not seeing a lot of that yet. Oh, that's what Natasha Chart was talking about, that people need to be creating these organizations in every state all over the place. Yeah. And it, it does make a difference. I mean, in San Diego, for example, uh, every time something like this happens locally, it's an opportunity because San Diego just voted on it, uh, whether to adopt uh, the, the their own genderized version of the international treaty on ending discrimination against women. And it did pass, but it was three to two. So by the time everybody showed up, made noise, waved signs, made speeches where they could, got the ears and meetings with leg- with uh, the county commissioners, it was three to two. So two commissioners saw that this is not good for women. This is actually the opposite of good for women because now you're pursuing things that are, su- that are in the name of ending discrimination against women. But if you don't know who women are, you're bound to end up helping men. Uh, a lot more than you are tracking, much less helping women. So it does make it, it does make a difference. I worry that that's a, a feature, not a bug to the people that support that. So these underground groups, are they from across the political spectrum? Yes, although predominantly Democrat and left wing. Because they have to be underground. Right. Like you're you're out. And I, while you were talking, I was thinking like, yeah, you know, what sort of consequences have happened from you being outspoken about this? But then I thought like, well, she's, you know, right of center and your own tribe tends not to scapegoat like like the the attacks are much more vicious if you're from the left. That's my impression anyway. Yeah, I think that's been the case for for a while now. I think that um, I mean, the right has its own issues with the equivalent of 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 cancellation, I suppose. But I I think it's, I think cancel culture has been enforced by a dogma on the left, um, probably just before and as the uh, progressivism really jumped the shark and moved past um, material identities into just pure, weird postmodern ideology. Yeah. It hurts more if it's your own tribe that's doing it, right? Like we're- It it does actually. It hurts much more. I mean, in fact- a lot of people I know, they they feel so much enmity toward the right that, you know, they they enjoy hating and they're fine being hated. And that's like a badge of honor that makes you a hero. But boy, are they mean. <laughs> they are mean to their own tribe or former members of their own tribe like me. I mean, po- politically... It's always been, you know, well, you're the wrong kind of woman. You're the wrong kind of feminist. You're the wrong kind of lesbian. You're the, you know, it stings when you're accused of like betraying the group, I suppose, that you're part of or have some responsibility to. But those those charges tend to come from the left, not not so much from the right. Have you built more coalitions across political, you know, conventional political divisions around genderism or have you always been pretty cooperative with people of all political faiths, <laughs> political, uh, I don't even know how to describe American politics at this point. It's so yeah. like old fashioned to think of left and right of what's going on now is so weird, but, but yeah, like has, has this, you know, like 
15 years ago, if you were right of center, did you talk to, are you talking to more left of center people now or fewer or what? Oh, yes. Ah. Yep. Very, very, very much so. Yeah. I think, I think this uh, gender ideology issue has, has broken through and, and really kind of risen above a lot of the, the traditional left, right silos that have existed. I, I think people on the left feel the same way. They find themselves talking to people on the right in a way and, and with the frequency and with the heart to heart, even like uh, really, really working with them and talking with them in a way that has never happened in their political lives before. Uh, so I think that's an experience that people on the left and the right are having right now. And, you know, yes, there's a little bit of a little bit of suspicion, a little bit of squirreliness, like, oh, we know we can't trust you to, you know, to, to have our best interest at heart when it comes to anything else. But it's been really a couple of years now of that very overt and conscious and deliberate cross political teaming up on this gender issue, showing up at committees together, show, you know, asking for government meetings together. That's what struck me as a government official was the first time that I saw Women's Liberation Front ask for a meeting with me and come in partnered with uh, Alliance Defending Freedom and realizing, oh my goodness, these are people that shouldn't be talking to each other. And yet here they are wanting to make their pitch to the government uh, on a single issue um, for very similar reasons, setting aside every other bone of contention they've ever had with each other. It, it, it's impactful. There's uh, something really far on the left called the Democratic Socialist Alliance or something, DSA. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like AOC's roots. And there's actually been people who are leaving the Democratic Socialist group because they are frustrated by how genderized the DSAs have become. So even people who are on the extreme left wing now are raising concerns because they think that it's not right to eliminate sex as a class. Well, that, absolutely. And the way that, and if you're going to eliminate sex as a class and not take that into account, but you're doing it on a prince on a, for a concept that has no limiting principle to it, what happens, and it is already happening, is that you're also not paying, going to pay attention or stop what you're doing to refocus on any other class either, including economic class. And, and you know, so I think a lot of traditional Marxists or socialists um, are very frustrated by what they're seeing because out the window goes any any kind of class analysis based on economics or any kind of material conditions that affect identifiable groups. And I that's very that frustrating. Should. Let's make Marxists great again. <laughs> you have to. You have to toss out gender ideology in order to make Marxism great again. No, no. Let's do MAGA. Make anarchists great again. No. <laughs> Candace, you've been so generous with your time. I'm wondering, though, for our listeners, where should they go to learn more about you or to hear more about your cause. I would love it if people wanted to go support Women's Liberation Front, womensliberationfront.org. And 
There's a terrific um, up-to-date blog uh, page and, and information about what really is happening to these women in prison and, um, you know, supporting and spreading the news about, about that would be wonderful. Uh, go sign the Women's Bill of Rights. You can look that up anywhere. Support the Women's Bill of Rights, um, the Women's uh, Declaration, uh, Declaration of Women's Sex-Based Rights that WDI International and WDI US are supporting would be fantastic. Be aware that Title IX regulations are going to be proposed by the Biden administration probably this month. That would be the first time that uh, schools would officially and legally be required to uh, treat gender identity discrimination as a as, as a thing uh, under a sex discrimination statute like Title IX. So I will be passionately involved with getting inspiring public response uh, and and coordinating outrage to that to that move. You can follow me on Twitter, uh, as you said before, at CE Jackson Law on Twitter. Um, it's going to be a busy summer. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. This was awesome. And Turfs and Trannies, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Turfs and Trannies. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support our podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by directly supporting Nina Paley on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nina Paley.